0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Now we're going to be studying through Exodus 34 and some surrounding passages. But to summarize uh, this afternoon's message, I want to read for you Psalm 86.5. The psalmist says, For you, O Lord, are good. And forgiving, abounding in steadfast love, to all who call upon you. So this afternoon I want to preach a message entitled, Our God is a Forgiving God. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this series, we ask that you would encourage our hearts with your truth. And Lord, that you would cause us to understand your word more clearly. Understand in particular today more about you and that you are a forgiving God. Strengthen us by your word, and uh, cause us to walk in the way, because we understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's no surprise to any one of us that we live in a world of pain and hurt, and we experience pain and hurt on a personal level, whether it's with our spouse, a parent, a child, a friend, or a co-worker, or a neighbor, a stranger. We can also experience pain on a national level. We think of something like 9-11, and Gary Enrig refers to that in his book and opens his book with the travesty of September 11th, where the two planes flew into the two towers in New York. And it shows us very clearly that this world is full of pain and hurt. Now, if we were to believe the evolutionists, they would simply explain these things as, this is just a whole lot of chemical reactions. This is the survival of the fittest. This is natural selection. There's actually nothing moral to any of our life or anything that exists. But we feel differently about life. We actually feel pain. We feel hurt. We feel being wronged. I say that because when two kids get, on the, get in a fight on a bus, people don't think, well, that's just a chemical reaction. Why are, you us, why are you making us think about it? One's just stronger than the other, that's life. They actually think that it's possible for people to wrong other people. So we all sense what it is to be wronged by other people, and we all sense what it is to actually wrong other people ourselves. So for example, you could ask almost anyone to name someone who has wronged them and you don't need to wait very long to get an answer because it's easy to think of someone who's wronged you before. Now that being the case, realizing that there is pain and hurt because of wrong in the world, we have to consider how we handle Our own wrongs, that is when we wrong other people, and we have to consider how we should handle when someone else wrongs us. Now, some people handle those things, they handle the wrongs of others as leverage. In other words, when you come up short in my estimation, that's my opportunity to use that shortcoming as a stepping stone, because now I have something on you. It's like blackmail. Other people, when they think of the wrongs of others, they use that as a convenient response or a convenient excuse to no longer have to treat that person with any kind of kindness or respect. You've done wrong to me. Now I can do anything I want to you. It's a license. Still, there are other people who would do something that's altogether archaic and they'd actually forgive the wrongs of other people. And forgiveness is a topic that we are going to be studying for beyond today. I don't, I don't know how long, but we're going we're to work on forgiveness for a little bit now, at least. Okay? And as we begin this study, I want us to see that forgiveness is something that's on God's resume. Our God is a forgiving God. You say, well, why is that? Our God is a forgiving God because he says he is. So we need to see that truth and we need to seek to understand that truth. And we're going to find that God says he is a forgiving God in the book of Exodus chapter 34. Before we jump into what he says in chapter 34, let's consider the context of his declaration. This chapter, as you look at it in your Bibles, is entitled, the heading of the chapter is either entitled The Covenant Renewal, or Moses makes, two, makes new tablets. Of course, you immediately ask yourself, well, why did he make new ones? Well, Moses had broken the first set. You trace back to Exodus chapter 32, verse 19. You see, you see these words. As soon as he came down, that's Moses, he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. So thinking of the context of Exodus 34, we know that Israel has entered into a covenant with God. God's given them his law. And now Israel is violating that covenant. They're worshiping the golden calf. They're breaking the covenant. And Moses has now broken the tablet, showing God's displeasure towards their wrongful worship. So in verse... Or chapter 33, Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelite people because God has prepared to wipe them out. So that's the context. When we enter chapter 34, we understand now why there has to be a replacement set of tablets because the first have been broken, because God's people have broken his covenant. God wanted Moses to have a, a new set. So let's read the first verses of chapter 34. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. What does Moses do? Verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like a first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to, on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hands two tablets of stone. But as we go through the rest of the passage, more than just getting a new set of stone tablets is required. Israel needs to know about God's disposition towards them. You see, Israel has sinned, and they need to know how God is going to deal with them given their sin. And therefore, we might not mind listening in on what God will tell them about his disposition towards them, knowing their sin. Because we too have sin. So let's listen in carefully. When when we listen to God's declaration, we see that he's going to reveal his character. And this is verses 5 through 7. Let's read them. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So this declaration, I say it's a declaration because you see in verse 5 it says, The Lord descended, stood with him, and proclaimed, proclaimed. This declaration is an answer to Moses' request to see God's glory. Again, this is looking at the context. Chapter 33, verse 18. Moses is with the Lord there. He speaks to the Lord, and he says to God, Please show me your glory. That's Moses' request. This is God's answer. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And God does that, not immediately, but some verses later in chapter 34, which is what we just read. It says he descends, he stands there, and he proclaims his name. That, that is to say, the glory of God is revealed in the sum of his perfect character, okay? The glory of something or someone is what makes that thing or person unique or excellent. So we teach a child that the glory of a giraffe is its its long neck. The glory of a young man is his strength, right? The glory of an older man is his wisdom. What's the glory of God? Well, every aspect of God is perfect and unique in its perfection, so God's glory is the sum of all his unique perfections. And what God is doing here is providing a list of those, a resume of his unique perfections. So we'll read, to, we'll read these lists, and they communicate different things to us. In verse 6, the attributes that are listed reveal God's disposition towards our weakness. Okay, let's, let's read through them again. It says first in verse 6 that God is merciful and gracious. He is merciful, meaning that he withholds what we deserve. He is gracious, meaning that he gives us what we don't deserve. So you can see how those go hand in hand. In addition, he's slow to anger. Why would he need to be slow to anger? Well, think again of the context. His people have just sinned against him, chapter 32. They worship the golden calf. He does not immediately wipe them out, but he is slow to anger also says he's abounding in loyal love. That is to say, he is loyal, not fickle, to his promises. He's made promises to Israel. Israel's made promises to them. They've immediately defaulted on their promise. God won't do that. Furthermore, it says he's abounding in truth. That is to say, when he says it, it's correct and it's reliable. I always think of Genesis 1 when I think of God's word and its reliability. What he says happens exactly as he says it. He's always a God of truth. His word is trustworthy. So these qualities are precious to to us. Why? Because of our weaknesses and because of our failure. Think of the context in which this is being presented It's not being presented in a context where man is just like God, perfect in holiness. No man is wicked and sinful. And that is a very dark background. But it is against, if you would, that black velvet background that these sparkling diamonds of God's character just gleam to us. Those things... A revelations of God's attributes given our weaknesses. Now, as we look at verse seven, this is going to reveal God's response to our choices. So let's look at verse seven. It says that God keeps loyal love for a thousand. That is to say that God continues his promises to His people indefinitely. He is going to make sure that his promises keep on going. Well, to who? To anyone? If you look back to the first time this is referred to, you perhaps see in the cross-reference Exodus 20 and verse 6. It says that he is this way for those who love me and keep my commandments. So that shows us this is God's disposition, or I should say this is God's response when people act a certain way. When his people choose to walk in the way, this is how he is. Okay. Now, it also goes on to say that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That is to say, he releases people from evils and sins of all sorts. To see that further explained, you just keep on reading in your Bible, you get to the book of Leviticus, and you see that as people confess their sin, bring the appropriate sacrifice, they're forgiven of that sin. Leviticus is a wonderful book to see what the forgiveness of God is and what that entails. And then <clears throat> the last thing you see in verse 7 is that God punishes the unrepentant. This is the balancing statement about God. He doesn't let anybody get off the hook. The guilty are, are going to get what they deserve. Okay? So these are the qualities of God that He I said, this is the way he acts in response to the way man acts. Man is supposed to walk in the way, but when he doesn't, man is to seek forgiveness. Why? Because if he doesn't seek forgiveness, he'll be punished because of his sin. And God wants us all to know that about him. And he wants us to respond appropriately, given what he's told about himself. What does Moses do? Well, he does what he ought to do because this declaration of who God is is going to be followed by Moses' worship. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. So, what we see Moses doing is bowing before the Lord. He responds humbly. We also see Moses confessing the sin of the people. He says that they're a stiff-necked people. And as you look at the context, that's exactly what the Lord said about the people in chapter 33, verse 3. You are a stiff-necked people. Moses admits that, and he asks for God's pardon given their sin. So, he is motivated by the revelation of God's character to bow before God in worship and to seek God's forgiveness. And that's the same thing that ought to be true for us. The truth that God is forgiving ought to motivate us to seek His forgiveness. So, that's, that's an overarching picture of the context of God's declaration of that He is a forgiving God. Now I want to go into, just quickly, when we think of well, what is forgiveness, we're going to flesh this out in the weeks to come, but what's forgiveness according to this passage? First, I want us to see that it is God who forgives our sins. God is the one who forgives. In chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, it says, it gives us a resume of who God is. It is, He is a God. Who does a number of things. Verse 7 says he is a God who forgives. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So as you read through the Bible, you will realize that God again and again and again does this. God forgives. And it's unique that of all the things that he could say, this is what I do. This is the one he chooses to tell Moses about. Of all the things I do, Moses, I forgive. You need to know that, Moses. And given the context, we can understand, because we are the ones who need forgiveness, because forgiveness is something that operates and occupies the realm of human relationships. This isn't something that happens just statically in one person's life. It involves multiple people. How do we know that? We know that because it is employed in the case of man's sin. That's why it says he forgives, and then it says three different terms that are given for sin. The first is wickedness, which talks about man acting in a twisted or perverted way. The second is rebellion, which shows that man willfully violates what he knows he ought to do, and thereby thereby he violates and betrays his relationship with his Maker. And then it says, lastly, sin, which is a very general term for just simply missing the mark, what he ought to do. So that is to say, forgiveness is what God does when man disregards God's expectations for him. We know from 1 John that sin is the transgression of the law. When that's, that's man not meeting up to God's expectations. And forgiveness needs to come into play when that kind of thing happens. And I say we need God's forgiveness given what comes next. It says in verse 7 that God's a forgiving God, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, it says, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. That's to say He punishes sinners. So punishment is contrasted with forgiveness. So we don't want punishment. We want the better option. What's the better option in this passage? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the thing that we need. So forgiveness is not something we should shrink away from. Forgiveness is something that God does, something that we need because of our sin. Now we haven't really got into what that forgiveness is yet, but let's know for sure. It's a quality of God. Something he does, it's something we need. We're going to get into what it is in the weeks to come. But let's be challenged by what we've studied so far in Exodus, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for a chance to look at this passage and its context. Lord, challenge us with this whole topic of forgiveness and help us to understand uh, what it is and uh, that it's a quality that you take for yourself. It's something that you do again and again. And uh, Lord, help us to respond appropriately, even as Moses did. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.